Welcome to the Masterminds Podcast Channel, brought to you by DonorSearch, a leader in prospect research tools and analytics, and your host, one of America's top philanthropic experts and fundraising consultants, Jay Frost. Until recently, Voulet served as the executive director of RVC, a nonprofit in Seattle that promotes social justice by developing leaders of color, strengthening organizations led by communities of color, and fostering collaborations between diverse communities. His singular voice on issues such as nonprofit funding, the sustainability myth, and equity and diversity in the nonprofit sector has been rocking everyone's boat at conferences around the world and through the pages of his powerfully irreverent, no-nonsense blog, Nonprofit AF. We caught up with Vu at his home in Washington. So welcome to the program, Vu. It's really great to have you. Thank you for taking time to do this. Thanks for having me, Jay. I appreciate it. Um, You and I have not met in real life yet. Uh, So I know you, perhaps like a lot of people do, by reputation, um, sometimes from your work with uh, Rainier Valley Corps. Uh, but also through your blog, and and but I do want to ask you about your your work uh, there in Seattle. Understand how you chose to leave recently? Yeah, I was at uh, Rainier Valley Corps, which just changed its name to RVC, mm-hmm. and that that I was there for about six years, and it was formed to really address the fact that we don't have enough people of color in the sector. And the ones that we do have are really struggling. And also organizations led by communities of color have been struggling for funding for a long time. So RBC was founded to, 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 to address those issues. And then recently, things have been going really well. The organization has been growing. And I have a six-year-old and a three-year-old. And I just decided 13 years of being a nonprofit director of two organizations is enough and I, and I need a break and spend time with my family. So that's kind of what I've been doing now. But you haven't slowed down obviously on the speaking or the writing. So what about your blog? What, what is the origin of that? And uh, what role is that filling for you now, especially as you spend more time with your family? Yeah, the origin of the blog. I, uh, it was, I was asked by a foundation to write a blog from a grantee's perspective, uh, social venture partners in, in Seattle. Mm-hmm. And because of funding dynamics, power dynamics, I, I couldn't really say no, they were funding my org. Uh, so I said, yes. And I, uh, I said, but I'm, I'm going to do it my way, which is to in- inject a lot of humor into it. Mm-hmm. And it, I think it, it was originally just read by a few people and then it started kind of snow- snowballing a bit. And then it spun off. I'm, I'm really grateful to uh, Social Venture Partners for asking me to write this blog. And it continues to this, to this day. I still be writing on the same schedule. And actually, with more time on my hand, probably the spelling and grammar would improve. <laughs> you know, it's interesting as you talk about the origin of that, though, that it was an institutional funder, in effect, that made that possible. But a lot of the the... Uh, punching that goes on in your work is really about these <laughs> institutional partners. So um, I, I'm I'm curious about that. What it's obviously you have a good relationship there. 
with their decision to invest in something that really promotes social justice. It's, that's one of the ways I see your blog. But um, oh, thank you, Jay. Talk about your uh, your relationship with institutional funders overall. I don't mean in their giving you grants when you were at Rainier, but just in general, how you feel about the environment for uh, seeking grants and support from institutional funders these days. Yeah, I, I, I first of all, I, I really do appreciate a lot of the program officers in the sector. There are lots of amazing staff who are working within foundations, and they experience a lot of challenges with power dynamics with their trustees. For example, the same power dynamics that we experience with program officers are the same ones that they experience with their own boards at their own uh, foundations. So, and so I'm, I'm very appreciative of many of the allies that we have who are working at these institutional uh, funders. And at the same time, there's a lot of challenges that we have to deal with all the time that hinder our work. Restricted funding, for example, or the lack of funding going to marginalized communities, or the fact that we still have a 5% legal payout rate, which means that 95% of money is just sitting there while we have so many challenges that we're dealing with and we barely are scraping by on, on, on resources. So, yeah, I, I have uh, an interesting relationship with, with institutional funders. I do appreciate many, many of the things that they do. And I also think that there's many systemic challenges that we really need to address that we want to be effective in doing this work. How have they responded to you personally about you're pushing on them about these things, about uh, payout rates and not just you know paying for things without paying for staff and all these other things you've talked about that are so important to us, making sure that we have the support we need to do the work and to pay our staffs. Most program officers have been very receptive, and the challenge is that they they don't they oftentimes they're the ones reading these blog posts and are engaging in these conversations. And then they have to go back to their organization and talk to their CEO or their board trustees who are not engaged in, in the conversation. And so there's just all these headwinds that they face. So I, I do think that that's one thing that we have to really think about is really getting program officers, one, to reflect the communities that they serve, but also getting them to have the power and autonomy to make major funding decisions. Because currently they mainly make recommendations. And I can just Imagine how disempowering that is when you have more knowledge and experience and connections to the communities that are most affected by injustice. And so you will be the person who will have more knowledge and would, would be the best person to make these funding decisions. And that yet you go back and you have to make recommendations that are often ignored by people who are way less knowledgeable than you. So I really empathize with a lot of program officers that are out there. And most of the reaction I get from program officers are, has been please keep pushing. We need to hear this from multiple people so that we can bring it back to our trustees so that we have the backing of the community to, to be able to push for many of these things internally. Um, so most program officers have been great. I do occasionally get one or two program officers who get very defensive. I wrote about this in funder fragility. It's, it's like white fragility or, or male fragility is that funders also because of power dynamics become very fragile when we, when they, when they feel like they're getting attacked, when it's just a valid criticism. Right. You, you know, it's funny, though, because you talked a lot about your work in the past, um, especially through Rainier, Bellicor, or RVC, uh, bringing people into, you know, uh, people from communities of color 
into organizations and positions of leadership leading within communities of color. And what you've described right there is that additional challenge we have of getting those same kinds of folks in these organizations, in these grant-making organizations, and then eventually, hopefully, hopefully sooner, uh, taking on the helm, becoming the CEOs. Are you seeing a lot of change within the organizations hiring more people from communities of color and more positions of leadership uh, at foundations? I think there's definitely more awareness of diversity in hiring. Um, and I, I do see more program officers and a few more CEOs, but there's still not that, that many in, in the sector. The program officers who are hired into foundations tend to be at lower level. And there's not that many CEOs of color at all. And certainly not very many board trustees who are people of color. And that's kind of where the power resides is within the board of foundations. And they they are not diverse at all. And that is a serious problem. So even so, a lot of the, the frustration that I hear from program officers of color is that is that they they get hired there and then they can they feel like they cannot make any sort of change at their foundation. And so why hire people who are diverse, who have the lived experience, if you are not going to trust them to and listen to their advice? So that is a serious problem in the sector. Um, there's a Japanese expression, uh, gaiatsu, which has been used a lot in, in talking about how if uh, you want to make change in a place that's where, the, where the infrastructure is, has, is, is long and old and entrenched, you, uh, sometimes you have to exert that pressure from outside. And you've certainly done that in a very funny way through all the work you've been doing. Um, it, it's, but uh, I'm wondering if you're finding other people in the sector joining you, like putting their shoulder to the wheel with you to place that outside pressure on these institutional funders. Because of course they're relying on uh, these institutional grant makers a lot in order to pay some some part of their bills. But are some of those people joining you? Are they, are they not just listening and enjoying and sympathizing, but also coming together with you and putting pressure on these foundations to, to change? Absolutely. I do, I do feel like I get a lot more credit than I probably deserve. There's been people who've been fighting these battles for a long time, and especially women of color who've been pushing for many of these things and not getting anywhere near the attention that I, I feel like sometimes I'm, I'm, I'm getting. So, yeah, I, I think this is something that we all need to be pushing. We all need to be acknowledging the inherent conflicts and personal conflicts that we have and like you said, Jay, which is, yeah, most of us are getting paid by by foundation funding in some part. And so it's it's difficult for us to be able to give feedback. But I know there are lots of people who have been doing this for decades now. And we just got to keep doing this. And the main thing that I add is pictures of baby animals, because I think that <laughs> relaxes people when I tell them, you know, the way that you're doing this is actually perpetuating injustice. But that message is not new. The message around restricted funding and general operating funds and, and stuff, it's, it's not new. People have been talking about these things for decades. Right. Although although I guess you're right that we haven't um, seen a lot of the spotlight uh, focused on those people who have been putting their uh, their energy and their, their identity behind trying to make this kind of change. So um, it's great to give credit where credit is due. And, and I, I have to ask you, in light of that, um, about 
the way we understand some of these concepts, because uh, they're not always easy to talk about. For example, diversity, equity, and inclusion, which has become kind of a watchword and, and a lot of people are throwing around, but I don't hear many people really dive into that and define it as they understand it, and especially how to make sure that it is observed and, uh, and really expressed in the work of organizations and those who, who support us. Could you talk a bit about that? about diversity, equity, and inclusion, as you understand and define these terms and as you see them playing out in our sector? Yeah, I really I really feel that most people don't really understand these terms at all. And a lot of this is our fault as a sector because we tend to intellectualize and overcomplicate everything. And so we use academic jargon and difficult concepts that are that we don't link to people's personal lives and examples to make it very relevant to them. And so it becomes the sort of like academic concepts, uh, these, these concepts that don't really relate to people's lives. So I think we have to do a much better job with the messaging around these concepts. For example, for me, I wrote, I wrote a blog post about, it was called The Courage to, to Be Unfair. And it's basically talking about, you know, like the concept of equities is basically simple. The concept of equity versus equality is basically you have three kids and you have three sandwiches. And the and the equal thing to do is one kid gets a sandwich, you know, so every kid gets a sandwich. That seems fair, right? But equity is, is, is us re- requiring us to look at, okay, one kid hasn't eaten in three days because his parents, you know, lost their jobs and can't find work um, because of whatever discrimination or whatever. And and so they have not had food for a long time. And one kid just came from a birthday party and is from a well-to-do family and, and he has plenty of food. And so the equitable thing to do is to ensure this kid who has not eaten for three days to maybe get two sandwiches or maybe all three sandwiches. Mm-hmm. And when someone from the outside looks at this and says, wow, why did why did you give this kid three sandwiches? That doesn't seem fair. You know, you're being terrible. Why Why did you do this? That's awful. But I think this is what I mean by the courage to be unfair. Equity is not about fairness because fairness is this very oftentimes the surface level people see. Fairness is kind of based on equality right now, and it should be based on equity. It is fair for the kid who has not eaten in three days to get more than one sandwiches. And it is fair for the kid who does not need that sandwich to not get any at this point in time. So this is what we really have to kind of ground it into this sort of like easy to understand concept for people. And we don't. So we have logic models and theories of change. But we can extend this sort of metaphor. It's like it's communities. Communities have been deprived of resources and have been most affected by injustice for hundreds of years. So, you know, we have to start moving resources and power to those communities that have been deprived and have been oppressed for a long time. That is what equity is about. And but instead, what we have is foundations going, well, you know, you know, we assume that you all are the same. You're all the same kid. You have the same hunger level and resources at home. You're just going to write an, an, an essay about how hungry you are. And we are going to have a scorecard to see how well you wrote about your hunger. <laughs> and then we're going to give you food based on how, how well you wrote the essay. And of course, if a kid hasn't eaten in three days, he's probably not going to be able to write the best essay because he's probably like, to hungry and can't focus. So, but this is what we do to communities. This is, we're just like, you know, we're just gonna 
fund the organizations that write the best grant proposals and the ones that can speak our language and the ones that can show up to various different meetings and play the, in all these unwritten rules and things. Those are all based on this sort of concept of fairness and equality versus like what are the communities uh, that are most affected by injustice and how do we move resources to them? And, and isn't that same kind of uh, lack of definition or perhaps um, aging definitions uh, also affecting our discussion about diversity? I, I mean, for example, I think you originally are from Vietnam. Is that right? Yes, I was born in Vietnam. So um, one one factor here is you know how we define what what constitutes diversity and um, making sure that everybody is included. That part about inclusion, um, and, and of course observing equity as as that as that occurs. But the Asian community, for example, is is usually a small part uh, of the community and. There's a tendency in some of the language that we use to kind of lump it all together as Asia. Um, so you, you might have experienced this personally as well as uh, as you were talking about intellectually as we think about these things. When when you talk yeah. to organizations about diversity, how do you how do you address this so people really understand the full the full measure of what that means? Yeah, it's it's like other things are very complex, right? It's yeah, and people have different backgrounds, ethnicities, and religions, and now we have to really start thinking about neurodiversity. We have disability, we have LGBTQ identities. These are all things that we have to consider. And I think people get very overwhelmed by it. But I think, again, diversity is just about having different people with different backgrounds um, when you're making the decisions that, that affects them. And yeah, it, it's easy because things are very complicated. It's easy for us to kind of to, to start lumping things and categorizing things. And it leads to things that are just not good or effective. For example, we had a, an evaluation report over here in Seattle a while ago that compared that kind of combined Asian kids and white kids into kind of one category on the bar graph. <laughs> and then, uh, then the other kids. Um, and the community is like, what the hell? Why did you do this? And the, the organization is like, well, you know, I mean, the data says that Asian students and white students are pretty much similar. And it's like, no, you have to. So that really upset a lot of communities because the Asian community, like you said, Jay, is very diverse. And when you, when you disaggregate the, the data, many kids from different communities, Southeast Asia, for example, or Polynesia, are not doing as well. And when we lump them all together like this, then, then we, we really miss these, these, this data and stories. So we have to be way more thoughtful about when we talk about diversity, what do we actually mean uh, by it? I, I'm curious, um, again, you've spent uh, a fair amount of time trying to unpack our understanding of the institutional relationship to not-for-profit organizations, how to make that work better, how to make sure that they are um, observing and acknowledging and investing in all these things we've been talking about. What about with individuals? Um, it, what what has your experience been like in terms of reaching out to the entirety of the community of, of individual support and specific uh, communities that might have a personal understanding and experience with these very same issues? Are, are, are you seeing that there's a better understanding or or perhaps not among individual donors uh, for, for these things? And, and are they supportive of organizations in a more robust way? Well, I've been working on this uh, this new movement called community-centric fundraising, 
And it's really about getting donors to understand the systems that they are in the, and the community that they are that are they are serving. Currently, we often have this sort of like let's ensure that donors are the heroes that they are, uh, that they feel good about their donations. And I think the move in the movement mo- moving forward is that is not good enough. And in some ways, that's actually kind of harmful to the work that we're doing. Yes, we should definitely be nice and appreciative of our donors. And at the same time, we have to be able to call out systemic injustice and the way that many of our donors might be perpetuating to it. So perpetuating it. So, for example, you know, a, a lot of wealth disparities is, is caused by, by, by things such as um, colonization and a legacy of slavery. A lot of the wealth is built on many of these things that we refuse to acknowledge. Or the fact that the tax code favors wealthy individuals who are able to squirrel money away into donor advice funds and then get to pick and choose their pet projects. And then we have been trained and, con- and we have conditioned our, our donors to feel good about, about these pet projects that they support. So then they're like, oh, you know, I want to support this, uh, this, this dog park. You know, we have a lot of dog parks in Seattle. I love dogs and I love parks and I think they're great. But do we really need that? But that's like where mo- a lot of funding is going, is into things that people are, they feel attached to and they feel connected to. And the, unfortunately, many of those things are not going to be the things that are most pressing right now. So kids it being in cages at the border, for example, um, or people getting shot at because they're, they're black. Um, these are things that no one wants to donate to because they don't feel like, and we, and you know, they don't feel connected to these causes or it's too scary for them or it's too uncomfortable for them to acknowledge it. And we as a sector just go, oh, thank you so much for donating to this great cause because all the causes are equal and they're not. They are not all equal. We need to stop thinking that all missions are equally valid. They are not, right? They, there's an ecosystem that is out there and all the missions are interrelated. And there is a, a really big, this imbalance in the ecosystem of missions right now that I think we really need to do a better job educating ourselves and our donors about. There's been a a huge increase, as we know, in wealth inequality. Um, And, and, but also there's been an explosion of giving by the very top, uh, very top one, two, three percent of the donor pool in the United States, even as the percentage of people giving has declined in the United States. And similarly with foundations, it, it we've seen a huge explosion in the number of foundations. And as you said, donor advised funds. So these things are all happening simultaneously. And, and I'm wondering, are you seeing any, any improvement as this wealth inequality and this growth of these, uh, these massive funds uh, occurs? No, I don't. I, I really think we this is this is the work of our sector moving forward. It's really figuring out why do people have so much wealth in the first place. 162 billionaires, I, I just learned, owns more than half the world's population. Over like four billion people does not amount to the wealth of 162 billionaires. I think it's unethical for anyone to have a billion dollars. There's no possible way you can you can be a billionaire without exploiting labor and people and, and, and contributing to inequality. So no, if, we, if people have a whole bunch of money and they're giving back, that doesn't mean anything. It's like, 
like when I was gardening with my three-year-old and he was like, look, I planted a seed. And I was so proud of him. And, but then I looked back and he had trampled over like 10 plants <laughs> that we had planted that had been growing <laughs> for a long time. Right. And this is kind of how we treat uh, many of our major donors and, and, and billionaires like, oh, look, you planted one seed. Oh, it doesn't matter that you trample over hundreds of seeds getting here. But no, let's praise you for this one thing that you did. It would have been way better for you to have not trampled over those seeds. So pay taxes like Amazon giving $10 billion to, to, to help with climate change. Well, Amazon has not paid any taxes for years and years. So that $10 billion is not their money. And so like we need to stop praising billionaires for, for doing things that they should not have had, you know, they should have done completely differently by paying their taxes. And, and I, I was going to ask you about that. Um, yeah. that commitment, although we don't really understand what the nature of that commitment is yet. Um, but, but that you've got in, in Redmond, of course, somebody else who's, who's gone a slightly different path. And sometimes there's controversy about the Gates money, of course. Um, but there have, but it's a different kind of commitment. Um, do you think that there are models for people who have been able to amass some measure of wealth, whether it's you know in the uh, hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars or in the billions of dollars, to still align themselves with the kinds of changes that you've been trying to make through your writing, through your speaking, through your work with Rainier Valleygore before? I know there are lots of uh, thoughtful donors. I know there are there and there are groups that are working with them. For example, resource generation and social justice fund uh, Northwest, which is I think is also trying to branch out into do in different geographic locations about getting individual donors to be very thoughtful about how they give and and to do in such in a way that is not that does not perpetuate this sort of savior mentality or this poverty tourism that I unfortunately I believe a lot of our sector uh, has been perpetuating. And so, yes, there, there are definitely uh, donors who are thoughtful and organizations helping these donors to be thoughtful. I do believe that our sector has to do a better job of just not just helping donors with wealth, figure out how to spend that equitably and, and, and you know, in, in, a, in a way that makes sense and does not perpetuate injustice. I really do think we have to start thinking about why do people have that wealth in the first place, that much wealth to give. You know, there are a lot of things that are broken. Uh, the tax system, you know, like uh, the, the influence of corporations on politics. These are things that we have to, to address. And also, I, again, I, I mentioned like this sort of like where do people's family, uh, where, where did fam family wealth comes, come from? So I, and we have to address that and get our donors to understand that. I have a friend of mine who is a major donor who discovered through a workshop that her family's wealth came from displacing a native family from their land. And now she has, she is committed that when she gets her inheritance, she's going to give 100% of this money back to the native community because this is not her money. So I think this is kind of like the exciting and challenging work that our sector has moving forward. And I'm really excited about it. I think this is what we want, we need to do. We want to advance a, a just and equitable world. And, and you know, I know you've you've talked about it here, and you've talked about it all the time on Twitter. Um, you apparently have the two smartest kids on earth, or at least the two funniest. <laughs> um, and I, you just talked about one child trampling over plants to plant the good one, and I, I'm sure that you 
um, help them to see what the path that they took to plant that good seed. Uh, but I'm wondering, as you think about all this stuff, what is it? What is it that we can do with our own kids, not just within our communities, the organizations we work with, not just our writing, our speaking, but with our own families, those closest to us, to help them make those kinds of decisions that you just talked about with your donor, major donor friend? Oh, thanks, Jay. I really appreciate this question. No one has ever asked me this before. And I, and I, I really appreciate it because, yes, we, there are lots of systemic issues in play, and we do have to be very thoughtful about that. And at the same time, we also have individual choices and interactions that we need to be more thoughtful about too. So with, with, with my kids, I don't know, I try to do, I try to be more thoughtful about, you know, pointing out the, the injustice to them in a way that they would understand. So for example, we have a serious homelessness issue in Seattle. We have lots of people who are experiencing homelessness right now. A lot of people who have jobs, they have full-time jobs and they cannot afford the rent here in Seattle. And, and so there's a lot of folks experiencing homelessness and it is, it's heartbreaking and we see people all the time and the kids would ask, you know, why is this person on the, why, why, why are they there? Why don't they have a house? And can I explain to a six-year-old why someone may not have a house and really kind of dispelling many of these terrible myths about, uh, about people experiencing homelessness from the very beginning? So that they don't have this, so they can be inoculated against some of the messages that they will get later on about, you know, about that are terrible about people experiencing homelessness. I want them to understand that any of us can be homeless and that a lot of people are, who are in this situation is not their fault. And, you know, they could get sick or they could have an accident or they could get fired unfairly. And any of us could be, could, 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 could face these challenges. So I think it's important for us to, to not filter things for our kids, but to explain it in a way that they would actually understand and connect to. Thank you for that. I, I, um, what about personally? How are you going to um, take take this time that you've given yourself and your family and and uh, continue working on these things? These are clearly a passion for you. What What's next for you? What do you imagine doing over the next decade? I don't know, Jay. I was told I'm going through a midlife crisis. And then I should not make any, <laughs> any decisions, you know, like buy a Porsche or like some nonprofit version of a Porsche, like a 93 Honda Accord or something. <laughs> and, <laughs> and so I, I'm supposed to take it easy and not make any sort of commitments to anything. I, I am I'm enjoying being a, a stay-at-home dad for right now and doing more speaking and writing. Uh, I, I think I want to focus on video as like a sketch comedy show about nonprofit work. I think Ooh. we need more videos, <laughs> hilarious videos about, because our work, even though it's very difficult, it is also full of humor and, and there's so many brilliant people in the sector. And I, I want to really highlight that. Um, and also bring some light to some of the challenges that, that we face, but in a, in a sort of humorous way, um, so that's that's what I I think I'm, I want to do next. I also think about writing a book, but I'm like I don't know maybe I need something that's a little more um, creative or different than what I've been doing uh, at, at this time. So I'm not so sure. Also, nonprofit and musical is a, another potential option. So <laughs> we'll see. Uh, 
Well, in view of that, I'm a little concerned because on your video list is The Walking Dead and Game of Thrones, but also Downton Abbey and Golden Girls. So I'm not really sure uh, which direction you're going to go with your characterization in the nonprofit world. Uh, if it's going to be more dead zombies and beheadings or, <laughs> or uh, upstairs, downstairs. Um, what, what do you watch, Jay? What? <laughs> What shows do you what what shows do you recommend? I um well I I probably go more in the Downton Abbey thing. Uh, although I like the the folks downstairs, probably they're more entertaining. Um, but uh, yeah, they are. <laughs> but no, all of it's good. I guess we do have a bit of a, a throwdown, you know, um, when it comes down to our sector. I mean, you talk about that all the time. Uh, but uh, I'd like to think that we can. Um, get people to cooperate a little more and have a, a little less bloodletting, but. Uh. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, we do have a, a nonprofit hunger games <laughs> and it's very prevalent and we need to, to stop it. And it's, it's like Game of Thrones. I, I think I, I wrote about this a while ago, which is like, we are, we nonprofits are like wildlings on one <laughs> side of the wall. And we just like, and the funders on the other side, and every once in a while, we're just like pounding at the wall saying, let us in, you know, please give us general operating funds. The zombies are coming. And yeah. the funders are like, oh, my gosh, the wildlings, they're asking for general operating funds again. You know, get the hot oil. And <laughs> <laughs> but the reality is the, 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 the ice zombies are coming and they don't care if you're on one side of the wall or the other. They're going to kill you. <laughs> and we have the ice zombies of like injustice and poverty and racism. And we don't have time to build walls between one another anymore. We, we just, we just, we just can't. And that has been the way that it has been is like, we have all these walls and tensions and, and, and infighting and all this stuff when we're just like not focused on the greater threat that is out there, which is injustice. And yeah. so I, I think we need to do a much better job breaking down walls and connecting to one another and focusing on the greater threats. You know, what's funny about all of that and all the things you've, you've shared is that some of this, some people might say it comes down to an army of people knocking at the gates, whether that's Lord of the Rings or whatever it is. Um, uh, but another person might say, well, you need the leader uh, to do it. You need some kind of hero figure who's going to come up with a solution that'll break through and, uh, and, and get to safety or, you know, come up with that bigger, more equal equity driven vision. And I, I'm wondering, as you look at all this, people have looked to you for advice and and, and a good laugh. Um, how much do you think we need heroes in this battle? And how much do you think people need to all come together in this battle? I I think the concept of this heroic leader is dying and mm -hmm. it's good. Like this sort of one person and I, you know, and in some ways it has worked. And in, but I think as our as our communities diversify, this sort of archetype is is not going to serve us well, because you know it it concentrates power at the top, and and I think it really just it's not working anymore. People want servant leaders. They want collective power. They want us to all work together, and they want. So this is this idea of this hierarchical organization and stuff. It's like it's starting to, to to taper out, which I think is a good thing. But in the meanwhile, you know, we can still use the tropes uh, for good. This this sort of this heart, this archetype for good. 
But if we're willing to shift like who we consider to be this heroic, charismatic leader, right now, for example, and and for his and you know, since ancient times to now, it's always been like men, cisgender men, especially white cisgender men, white straight cisgender able bodied men who have been seen as this sort of archetype of what a heroic leader is. And I really think that if we want to address systemic issues, then people who are most affected by injustice and who have the most lived experience fighting injustice should be the ones at the forefront leading the movement. And that is going to be women of color, especially black and indigenous women. And all of us, men and men of color and everyone have to be supportive of that and help to be and be okay being on the side and in the back and supporting the movement in, in that way. Thank you so much for all of this, Vu. Really, really wonderful to hear your voice and give and you giving voice to all these these ideas. Thank you. The Masterminds podcast is underwritten by Donor Search, the world leader in donor intelligence solutions for not-for-profit organizations. Our producer is Terrence Diggs. Our theme music is composed and performed by Ahmad Ibrahim. The voice introduction to our program is performed by Ryan Ibrahim. You can subscribe to the Mastermind series on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can find blogs, livecasts, and flash classes with our featured masterminds at donorsearch.net or check the show notes and descriptions.